Hey, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of love triangle murders involving police officers. This is Andrew from the Scary Mysteries podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and creepy true crime compilations on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, we have our Twisted News episodes, where we get you up to speed on the most terrifying and strange news stories currently happening all around the world. We're covering the topics you want to hear about, missing persons, killers, UFOs, and more. Best of all, we don't waste your time with any fluff or fillers, just straight to the true crime details. So go check out the Scary Mysteries podcast, and I'll see you there. Welcome back, everybody. Wow. I can't believe we haven't done an episode on this subject before. <laughs> like, really? Well, it took us this long to get to it? Yeah, we've picked on every other profession, right? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe <laughs> that's what it is. It's time to pick on this one. <laughs> yeah. But first, our episode recap from last week. Oh, yes. So very popular episode. We got a lot of feedback on this one as well. The Blonde Rattlesnake, episode 147. It took a look at the 1930s crime spree duo that terrorized Los Angeles after being married for only a matter of weeks and actually committing their crimes up to their marriage on their marriage yeah. date and I guess for their honeymoon. Basically, it was Los Angeles's own Bonnie and Clyde, and it's a cautionary tale of young love and violent thrills gone awry. Yes, that is Miss Burma and Thomas White. And as our loyal listener, Shannon, mentioned to me, she said, keeping the rattlesnake theme going after our Alabama snake episode. Absolutely. Thanks, Shannon. You know, she should have been a detective. She always picks up those patterns. We love her. Exactly. Exactly. So getting into today, as we said, we have picked on a lot of different professions. What have we done, Scott? killer nurses, long haul trucker, serial killers, yeah, criminal counselors, voyeuristic motel owners. <laughs> what have we not covered? I guess we haven't covered bad I cop know. love triangles. That's very specific, right? It is very specific. And it's, I'm still like, okay, because obviously up until the last minute, we can decide on what the title is that we publish. But I'm like, how do I make this sound like just kind of roll off your tongue and sound interesting? But that's what it is. It's love triangles with cops involved that end in murder. And yeah, there's more than one to choose from. Yeah. And some very, very interesting case studies for you guys today. Very salacious. So we're finally getting into it. Of course, with that, the trigger warnings, there's going to be murder by gun violence and restraint, as well as violence perpetrated in front of children. Although it's just very, you know, how we are. We're not going to put a lot of detail into that. It's just in mentioning. So yeah, we're going to hit one close to home and then we're right. going to hit one that happens elsewhere. And like I said, there unfortunately are plenty to pick from and there's a Another one that would have been close to home, but it would have been too close to home for us. Right. To talk I was going to say, <laughs> for our listeners, this is actually pretty significant because yeah. today's case study, one of the case studies that we'll be talking about is incredibly close to our work environment. We are adjacent and, you know, we are careful about which which 
types of cases like that we can and cannot cover. So this is a, a big step for us. But I think it's yeah. an important one because it really was a major, major case. And it also got a ton of coverage. It's been done on every show, rightfully so, because it also shows some really good police work, really, it really well does. thought out planning. And I have actually known about the local case for a very long time because it's when my parents were on the job at that agency. Oh, I'm sure. And I got all the dirt, all the behind the scenes dirt. I can't share everything. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. But, well, with you, I can, but not with a <laughs> microphone in front of my face. But again, like, it, you know, we've talked about this with like our Night Stalker episode, which yeah. put a pin in that because there's kind of an Easter egg about that in this. But just talking to people who are, you know, kind of living and working in the area around the time and what that was like. So I'll, I'll try to bring a little bit of that that's relevant that I can talk about from my parents' perspective. So, but why don't we back up a little bit? Because we want to talk about some things that are unique here, specifically why love triangles happen, and especially in law enforcement, because I think people think, wow, there's these really high rates of divorce among law enforcement. There's kind of these tangled webs in which they weave. But let's look at why... Why do we even have romantic relationships in our life? And then we'll yeah. sort of get more specific. So, yeah, thanks for kind of framing it that way, because purely from a clinical perspective, if we even go back sort of outside the clinical bubble before we pierce that little bubble there to explain, I want to go bigger. And the idea of sort of the built in genetic tribalism that mm -hmm. we are built with, it's a survival mechanism. It's why the human race has survived, has thrived. You know, what makes us different from other animals? We are ungulates births. Are, are, we, are humans ungulate births? I think that's the term that's used for our children come out with a need to be taken care of for quite mm. a while. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, goats drop on the floor and they're like, you know, <laughs> running the farm within a couple of hours, right? That doesn't work <laughs> with humans. And that's kind no. of built. There's, there's several theories that there's a purpose to that, which is that requires people to reach to each other for community and for relationship. And then we form relationships based on community need, which is sort of the, the genetic expression of how we survive, right? Yes. So yes. romantic relationships in particular are, although they are very much colored by different cultures, right? Mm -hmm. So even within the U.S., there's different courting rituals from different parts of the country. And then you expand that from around the world. There's all sorts of different rules about how relationships are supposed right. to go. But we are wired to be social. The, well, the majority of us are, like the vast yes. majority of human beings are wired to be social. And there's certainly some that aren't, that are completely benevolent and just that's the way they're wired. They just really aren't wired to be particularly seeking affection or seeking intimacy. But that doesn't make them antisocial in a clinical right. or diagnostic sense. It doesn't make them psychopathic. And then there are some on the very, very far ends of that staff that just aren't wired that way, right? Yeah. And not every part, not every group of animals are social animals. And right. this this almost, you know, this goes bigger than romantic relationships. This is just why you and I are friends and why we feel the need, like why I had to go have coffee with one person today and then have lunch with another person and just to keep those connections and Absolutely. ties going. But yeah. those serve purposes. Exactly what you're talking about serves a purpose. They That connection that you had with your friends in the last few days, those are buffers against the the stressors of living in the mm -hmm. 21st century in totally. a, a mechanized and industrial society it helps you deal with negative emotions god what would i do without you like i <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, like, even like you said, not necessarily romantic relationships, but when sure. my buddy Dan that I worked with, who a social not worker, husband Dan. not husband Dan, this was work right. husband Dan, and he's straight yep. and like we keep it clean. <laughs> you know, I really miss him at work. He's such an intellectual and way smarter than me, but we also share the same dark burp fart giggle humor. Right. And right. that was like a, a stress buffer. Right. So sure. these romantic relationships and not that Dan and I were in a remote romantic we're totally platonic <laughs> relationship. They also provide us a source of stability. Mm-hmm. And then they give us a sense of belonging. And interestingly enough, you know, we can say that it gives us a sense of love. But what is love? And, you know, I, I'm very Oof. woodly doodly on one side. But I also know the science that love is a cascade of really important hormones that our bodies have evolved to drip down our spine into the rest of our brain and body. It's the yeah. oxytocin, right? Yeah. I mean, going back to, you know, you saying a source of stability. I immediately think back to when you and I did sex offender risk assessment, and we would actually look for a certain number of years that somebody had been in a stable romantic relationship. And that was a point for them. It would speak towards lessening the risk of reoffense or recidivism for that. And stability is a big deal. I mean, it, it, all of these sort of go hand in hand, but I see that as also a buffer against stress. If you have one thing that's stable in your life, and that could just be a relationship, if something goes wrong at work, at least that other piece of the pie is in a good place. Absolutely. And it's so necessary towards the establishment and development of our own sense of personal identity. Yeah. You know, everybody, sure. maybe we have the same generally have the same template as humans, but everybody has their own flavors. And I mean, there's there's so many fascinating theories about childhood development, about sort of the onset of the industrial revolution and antibiotics. While we increase the childbirth rates, we reduce the infant mortality rate with Mm -hmm. the advent of hospitalization and understanding antibiotics and all of this, but they kind of went overboard and didn't emphasize skin to skin touch for several generations, basically, until now we've gotten back to no, you need that mom and dad need to be doing skin to skin touch with the baby to kind of like imprint on each other and get those that oxytocin flow. And so mm-hmm. fascinating stuff. And yes, clearly a couple of the people that we use in our case studies today probably could have used some better, better skin to skin touch when they were children, <laughs> yes. which would have made them better yes. partners, I think. Perhaps it's a really good theory here. So let me give you a little rundown of some unique factors to law enforcement romantic relationships that we can discuss as we go along here. So my first exposure to this was my parents, you know, my, my mom, my dad, my stepdad, all law enforcement officers, and kind of seeing how they interact with the uniqueness was of their relationships, as well as just our family. And then probably observation as a young cop of everybody else that I worked with, because I was not married when I was on the job in the beginning. And I would be very observant. It was really interesting in my town. We worked in a town in which a lot of my officers lived. Right. So, you know, kind of small town thing. And even with some of my training officers, like we would stop by their house, you know, so they could pick something up or whatever. And so I got to see this interaction with their, their spouses. And then of course myself, right. Cause I went and did the thing I said I was never going to do. And I ended up marrying a cop. So, you know, it's, it's been interesting because six years ago is when I first started seeing couples and they happened to be 
couples where at least one of them was in law enforcement and treating them clinically for whatever they came in for. So I think this is going to set the stage for some of the challenges that come up or maybe the perfect storm of factors that can contribute to relationship violence in the cases that we're going to cover. But obviously it doesn't all lead to that. This is just really to point out the uniqueness of what these couples have to deal with. So again, not a one size fits all when it comes to the personalities and relationships of police officers and their spouses, but just some very unique factors here. So I think number one, and this goes for a lot of different professions out there, if this is part of it, absolutely. but just the hours of the work. So long hours, you're talking 10 to 12 hour shifts. And then the fact that there is just shift work is also unique. So that can be an early morning shift. That can be a daytime shift. Sometimes some departments just have daytime and nighttime, or sometimes there's an overlap where you can be going to bed and waking up at funky times. It does not gel with your partner's schedule, as well as many different assignments including on call where, you know, again, like I'm on call right now as we're recording this. So I'm thinking I better get my butt in bed by nine o'clock because if that phone rings at midnight, it'd be nice to have a couple hours of sleep under my belt. And then when my phone rings, it wakes me up, but also wakes up my husband. So, you know, there's just these little unique pieces that make for, you know, sometimes a rough family life when if, especially you got little kids, if they're up, you're trying to keep them quiet while the spouse is sleeping because they have to work during the nighttime. It can be a really tough stressor. And then there's just sort of those, I guess it's similar to on-call, but just sort of those emergency response positions where even you and I have fallen into this category and different things we've done. Like if the shit hits the fan in the city, we are going to be required to come in to work. Oh, right. I mean, I I have no control over that. That's one of the contracts I sign is like, exactly. I am an emergency worker and- Yes. They, they can send me anywhere in the county at any time. And it's funny because some some of my coworkers could get very precious about it. Well, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to trudge <laughs> up to Topanga for whatever emergency. And I'm like, mm, well, you kind of have to. Have thought about that before you got into community mental health. But also, yeah, you are. Yeah, absolutely. So that has to be something that your family is understanding about. So I would say with that, if there's trouble at home, it is very, very easy to use work as an avoidance technique because there's always overtime to work. There's, I mean, people could straight out lie and be like, oh, I got called or there's an emergency and just go do something else. But if they just don't want to be at home, there's plenty of work to do in which they they can sign up for and just avoid whatever the problems are at home. So that also is kind of unique that there's that out, if you will, where you can just sort of kill yourself with work and not have to ever talk to your spouse. (laughs) So also with law enforcement specifically, we have sort of this like thrill risk-taking type of personality that is something we actually look for in a law enforcement officer. And I think Scott and I have probably talked about this before in terms of we don't do pre-employment testing. I mean, I've been trained in it and my dissertation was in it, but looking at how much do you want a certain scale on a certain personality test to be a little bit higher than the average population. So someone will actually run towards danger and be okay with that rather than being overly empathetic or not wanting to get involved in something that's a little bit more risk-taking. The flip side to that is then you have somebody with maybe a little bit more risk-taking personality and that sometimes doesn't gel well with stable relationships. Right. So usually, as we've talked about personality traits a lot, that's a thread that goes through all areas of your life. 
So you can't just toggle it on and off and say, oh, this is really great for work, but I'll switch this off when I get home. You're kind of expecting that type of person who's always looking for a thrill, always looking for, you know, something new and exciting. And you can imagine how that could play out in the stability of relationships. Another thing that works well for police work, but not so well at home is this idea of all or nothing or black and white thinking, this this very specific cognitive distortion that officers, they're not trained to think this way in the sense of like, hey, we want you to think all or nothing, but many aspects of their job require them to very quickly size up a situation and then decide what's going on. Is this person, is a crime been committed? Yes or no. Are they now going to jail? Yes or no. Is that a gun in their hand? Yes or no, right? So it could literally be a life or death decision, or it could be, all right, I need to get through all of these calls that people are asking for our service. So I really need to like systematically get through what's happening here. So you don't have a, especially bigger cities, you don't have a lot of time for people to do sort of that slow community policing and being more of like a customer service representative. It's like, all right, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? Let's move on to the next. And that thinking weirdly does not translate so great when you get home and you're trying to engage in that type of communication with your spouse or with your child. And I see a lot of that in counseling. Relationship counseling is the number one reason, at least in my shop, for cops coming into treatment. I guess relationships, not necessarily they come together, but it's kind of the presenting problem whether they come alone or together. There's something that I also see as kind of a pattern that I talk about a lot with clients is that, and you know, I see this particularly, I think when we're working and trying to process through a trauma that they've experienced on the job is that they just don't want to traumatize their spouses or their family members. And so they tend not to talk about things. And we know the best way to process a trauma is really to talk about it. And more times than not, I find, which is, you know, totally understandable, but they're wanting to protect their loved one from that. But then they end up just having this really hard line in the sand where they talk about nothing having to do with work. They want to keep it totally, totally separate. And I find that spouses don't like to be on the outside of a bubble and not know what's going on in their loved one's world. So that, that can be tough as well. When we talk about trauma and kind of processing through that with friends and family, it's not about the gory details of what happened. The important part is to talk about how it makes you feel and what you're thinking about in the moment. So, you know, that's kind of a way we sort of find our way around that. Again, understandable. You don't want to sort of slime the people that you love with the dark stuff that you see every day. They have to know what's going on in your life to some extent. But then there's other things, you know, again, that go with the job, cynicism, suspiciousness, having a command presence that doesn't roll over again so well at home. That does not work. (laughs) I mean, how would you like that? (laughs) Yeah. And then I think the last thing to really note is when we look back on officers that die by suicide, there is what we call the deadly triad that is quite present in the majority of these cases. And generally it's three factors that were there. There's an underlying depression that was not being treated. There is some sort of substance use problem going on. And most often they are intoxicated at the time that they take their lives. And then the third commonality that we see is that there was a recent loss of a relationship. So again, it's like, and we've talked about suicidality kind of 
very much in other episodes and especially having to do with police officers when we covered the disappearance of Deputy Ajay. But when there's that last thing that basically is now gone from your life when you've kind of lost everything that can be, I hate to use the word trigger again, but it can be sort of the last thing that makes them very hopeless. And we we generally see those things. So again, just another way in which relationships play a really big part specifically to law enforcement wellness and their wellness of their relationships. Yeah. All fascinating stuff. We talk about behavioral drift and working with law enforcement. I think that can, I, I do not specialize in couples when I was, when I was a law enforcement psych, when I inhabited a position like yours, I too worked a lot on relationship issues with individuals, but I also did several couples, several families. And, you know, you, you do see some things that are parallel to non-law enforcement couples, but you also see some things that are very, very specific. And yeah. in the probably five times that I saw law enforcement couples where both spouses were law enforcement, I was mm -hmm. like, oh man, I got <laughs> This I got to pull some stuff. This is spinning a lot of plates. We got to pull a lot of this apart. And I'm pretty, I mean, the way I was trained as a couples therapist is a little bit warm and cuddly, but also like pretty harshly observant at times. Yeah, sure, sure. And well, this is what I, this is my schedule when I get home from work. And this is their schedule when they get home from work. And then we have the kids and then we're just too exhausted, you know, and then we're mm -hmm. fighting. And I said, well, you guys divorce might be on the, you got some yeah. options, you know, you can change your schedule or you guys could divorce. And then if you divorce or separate, then you're not gonna have any support system at all. And it's going to be a real nightmare. You right. know, their and eyes go really wide because I'm saying that in the first session, I'm like, no, I'm just being practical. You need to yeah. be really practical about this. This is that you've made this work. You guys have this great foundation, but again, that black and white thinking of like, this is my mm -hmm. routine because routine mm -hmm. saves your life as law enforcement, right. but you right. have to have flexibility and respect the other person and then also make time for each other. But that's sort of across the board, any kind of couple. Yeah. Board. Yeah. But, especially at a certain point in your relationship. Yeah. You know, get yeah. into these and, bad habits. And look, there are commonalities in in romances and the laws of attraction that are are specific to the workplace, but also generalize or parallel in the non workplace world. So just getting away for a little bit from law enforcement specifics, there are many things that pull people together. Certainly, first and foremost for everybody no matter what anybody says you can say like oh i'm a i can't remember the word for intellectual philia like and like i'm attracted <laughs> to people's brains like well okay no. you're a, that's lovely and i love you for doing that but that's not the majority of the population you know we're we are wired to look for things in physical appearance. You know, we're yep. wired to look for things that reflect health and the health might be different from culture to culture. But the first thing that we obviously notice about people is their physicality and what we might be specifically attracted to physical characteristics mm -hmm. that we really like. And this happens before there's any communication of words anything right yeah and then another factor that's super super important is the similarities and the similarities of either lifestyle or similarities in what you grew up with in a relationship oh yes this is what i know this is what i saw my parents do and this feels right even though it may not be right it might be incredibly toxic but those kind mm -hmm. of similarities that you're repeating and carrying on very important factor in attraction as well as even if you both came from healthy backgrounds but you look both like hiking and you both like cooking and you both or you both like wild and crazy sex and that's what gets you going and sustains a relationship yep. that's wonderful or if you both like boring sex i mean you'd be a great couple together absolutely in fact the disparity there like 
for you know you get somebody that like is only interested in vanilla versus somebody that's not like oh man <laughs> i bet you've seen some of those couples that's that's a lot of education that has to come in there and pull things apart but i digress another factor is just sort of the geographical proximity the nearness to people so like and it's another sort of biological imperative for survival but you could be working with someone that you absolutely have no obvious shared interests or no physical attraction and then yep. the longer you work together will either push you really far apart or it'll push you together and i mean it doesn't mean that it's absolutely going to happen and everybody should be on guard it's like oh my my husband or my wife is a shift worker and they're with the other shifts and it's going to happen it's like no but there is going to be intimacy it's just that unfortunately our society has a real problem differentiating between the types of intimacy you can be intimate with a person of the opposite sex and be heterosexual or you can be intimate yep. with a a person of the same sex if you're a same sex attracted person and and not have it transition into that we just sort of unfortunately some people go oh i'm feeling this way it means i must be sexually attracted no not necessarily Mm -hmm. You know, but then also the other super important and sorry for digressing so much, but reciprocity, you know, and when when you get that reinforcement from the person that you're hanging with that like its own very special love language, you know, yes. when you have these positive things reflected back to you, we will respond in the same way. Like, what is it? One of the, the tricks. It's not the pickup artist. I'm not going like that, but it, it's a way of there's a, a trick and this is validated. This has been, actually been studied for turning down the toxic heat in a relationship like if you're working with somebody that you really don't like mm -hmm. one of the little life hacks for it is to ask the person that you know that doesn't like you or is tense ask them if they could do a small favor for you mm, and the act okay. and it could be like hey I'm so sorry could I borrow a pen or could right. you help me understand this sentence in in the manual I just don't get it that in itself is a building block of intimacy where the person has to overcome their dislike or their tension in order to provide you with something and boom it's been melted down but it's so subtle it's, it's not so like you're going subtle, through this process right. of oh so, i have you know, to get over this we don't do a lot of psych life hacks here on la not so confidential <laughs> but that's one of them yeah i think if we look at these and just maybe even kind of going back up the list backwards for law enforcement, it's all pretty relevant. I mean, yeah. reciprocity, you know, if you're working in tandem with partners and solving problems together, you know, there's going to be moments where even, you know, the toughest people give props to somebody else and or, you know, we tend to be a very gregarious group as well. So a, a lot of friendliness, a lot of socializing can definitely come off as flirtation or interest. And then if someone perceives it that way, you have your reciprocity where you feel like you have to give it back as well. And then things can build from there. When you talk about proximity, I mean, you could literally be sitting in a car for 12 hours a night with somebody else. Yeah. You're, you're spending more time with that person yep. side by side or in a cubicle. I mean, you know, in your case, and then similarities. That's not happening at my and work. I don't know. even, don't even I say know. that. 
I, I get an office all to myself. There's nobody in proximity. <laughs> but with similarities, I mean, how do you get more built in than the similarities of the fact that you guys have been trained the same way? You're looking out for each other's safety. You know, you probably have some level of interests that go just with police officers as diverse as they absolutely can be. I mean, there are people I meet all the time, just as people said with me, is like, oh, you don't seem like you would be a cop. But there's some built-in things there, right? That are similarities and interests. And then I guess physical appearance. I mean, everyone looks good in a uniform. No. <laughs> well, it doesn't yeah. hurt. It's like a, it you know, hurt. for guys, it's like a, you know, it's a tux. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing what a, a well-constructed suit or a tux can do for that's true. A, a particular, even a plain guy. It can make a big yeah. difference. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But again, like this idea of infidelity running rampant in law enforcement, I think always comes up and I had yeah. always heard that. So just some quick and dirty stats on infidelity. I know this is a big range, but... Across the board, just in the United States, 30 to 60% of married couples will cheat at least once in their marriage. So if we take the high side of that, you know, that's over half, or if we even split the difference at 45-ish percent, that's that's a lot. And another estimate from the Journal of Marriage and Divorce concludes that a mind-blowing 70% of married Americans cheat at least once in their marriage. So this one was a little bit more recent. That's why I pulled it and it yeah. has a much higher rate. So when you look at the numbers, Cops actually aren't any worse or above those numbers when we look at rates of divorce. They actually tend to, well, actually, this goes for the general population as well. When you remarry, because cops are kind of notorious for marrying a lot, because, you know, we joke about like... <laughs> how many alimony payments and pensions are being split up. But just in general with Americans, once we remarry, we actually don't get better at it. The rates of divorce go higher with each mm. subsequent marriage. Yeah, yeah. So 74% of men and 68% of women admit they'd cheat if it was guaranteed they would never get caught. And then 60% of affairs start with close friends or coworkers. And the average affair lasts two years. Hmm. I thought that was kind of long. Like, wow. But I don't know. How are they defining affair versus fling versus yeah. one night stand? You yeah. know, so I'm guessing this is a more substantial relationship. But do you find, I mean, I had always heard and I don't, you know, again, I've only worked with couples pretty recently and I know you've worked with male population more so just the normal population, not the forensic population. But I've always heard that men prefer to be married or we should say incommitted, like monogamous relationships. Do you find that to be true? Wait, what? What do you, I mean, I mean, I'm, I need context for that. What do you mean? That men would rather be married than single and they tend to get remarried quicker after oh, they get oh, divorced. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. There's a lot of studies on that. I wouldn't say that it necessarily means that they want to be married, but especially as a man gets older, you know, you will see some guys that go through like sort of the typical stereotypical midlife, midlife crisis. crisis. But, you know, there's just a lot of embedded cultural factors about men that you get into relationships and uh, without the greatest parenting skills or without the greatest partnering skills. And then mm -hmm. if the relationship doesn't last, they're at a loss because they actually just don't have life skills or they may not have been the best partner, but you know they were probably with somebody that was pulling some kind of emotion out of them. Now they've got no outlet at all. Mm. So yeah. 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 Can happen. Interesting stuff. Okay. Let's jump into our cases. So our first one is one that takes place here in Los Angeles and it involves the LA County Sheriff's Department. So 
Just quickly, again, I know we've overviewed this a couple of times. The sheriff's department is different from LAPD, the police department. So the police department handles anything in the city proper of Los Angeles. Los Angeles City is within the county of Los Angeles to not you know, make that any more confusing. And there are so other the cities within the county of Los Angeles correct. too that are literally like the down the middle of one street can be <laughs> one a small police agency on the other side is is the sheriff's department. Yeah. So like, wherever is not covered by a small police agency or LAPD in the county, the sheriffs will cover that. Right. So they do all the patrol duties and investigations. And we've talked about their homicide bureau is very renowned, as well as they do other ancillary things like run the jails and the courts. So on June 1st, 1985, Sheriff Sergeant George Arthur, 37 years old, was found dead in his van on a downtown freeway on-ramp minutes after he had left work at Men's Central Jail. At first, investigators thought that Arthur had been killed in a DUI crash after his van hit a 12-foot-high retaining wall head-on because they found empty beer containers littered in the back of his van. But this really didn't make a lot of sense since he had just left work and was found so close to the job site. However, the coroner's investigation revealed that the sergeant had, in fact, died of multiple gunshot wounds to the back of his head. Further investigation also determined that Arthur had been engaged in some sort of struggle inside the van before the crash. Police found traces of another person's hair and blood on the broken windshield, and eventually witnesses came forward to report they had seen an injured man apparently bleeding from the head crawling from the wreckage. Rumors then circulated that it was a gang hit because George had worked in an elite gang unit previously and that either someone had followed him home after his shift from the jail or they had snuck into the back of his van and lying in wait basically to attack him. There were two very good suspects that were looked at for many years, including a gang member who lived nearby and was placed at the scene by witnesses, as well as a gang member who had in the past threatened George's life. So George was described as a, quote, iconic member of the department and a great supervisor. So there was really a huge sense of loss in the department because he was absolutely reputed to have a stellar work ethic and he had been a great partner to a number of other deputies throughout his career. And he even received an award for bravery after fighting off armed gang members in an incident in which he almost lost his life. And according to an Investigation Discovery TV episode on the crime, George's estranged wife, Linda, returns from an out-of-town trip with a man she was seeing and she's super distraught. And she was, she is, an L.A. Sheriff's Department deputy as well. A detective interviewed in the series noted, quote, at the time we were grieving with the widow of our friend. So that's a very mm. specific, mm. like we got to investigate suspicious. this, but we're also grieving our loss as well as the per yeah. spouse who's, you know, has lost her spouse. Yeah, for sure. So a massive joint investigation was launched involving the LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Homicide Bureau. I mean, two of the best in the country really yeah. coming together and... I was, when I was talking with my mom about this, she said it was just like the creepiest, most eerie thing. Cause here he is just leaving his job. Like all of us do. And you know, every, every deputy starts in the jails and he had been there returning as a supervisor. And she's like, there's just nothing. She said it was almost night stalker ish feeling of just yeah. feeling very vulnerable for the law enforcement officers 
in that area. So this is how investigators were able to track down the witnesses who reported seeing a male crawl from George's van after the collision and flee from the scene because they had so many detectives that they were able to really just go out and start knocking on doors. And personnel from the forensic teams combed the crime scene and recovered a variety of evidence, including biological evidence that was not George's and therefore left by the murderer. And as you can imagine, with the murder of one of their own, this investigation left no stone unturned. The investigation entailed hundreds of interviews and an examination of a significant number of leads and clues. But despite all of the effort and resources, the murder remained unsolved for over a decade. So fast forward, April 1999, once again, LAPD's RHD and the sheriff's homicide detectives join forces to review this entire cold case at this point. And this leads to a renewed commitment to solve the murder of Sergeant George Arthur once and for all. So the investigation involved a complete review of all of the information and evidence obtained back in 85, and mainly other newly gleaned information and re-interviews of witnesses is what had to happen at this point. But additionally, DNA samples had been collected from several persons in the past, and now, of course, they're going to have better technology. So over the years, police had ruled out over 165 suspects before they landed on another deputy named Ted Kirby. Kirby joined the department in 1970. He worked patrol at the East Los Angeles station until 1984 when he transferred to the Hall of Justice jail. And in 1986, he transferred to the Men's Central Jail where he remained until he retired in 1996. So this guy was in the jails for over a decade yeah. at the end of his career. I mean, that will just make you a miserable person oh, alone. Abs- but yeah, I think we <laughs> I mean, may have mentioned that. Yeah, I think we guys. may have mentioned that a couple of times in the past, but that is one of the major flaws of the Sheriff's Department is how long recruits have to work as jailers and it really gets them bitter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, in 1997, Kirby had retired in 96. He and his wife purchased a new home southeast of downtown Spokane, Washington, where they moved upon his retirement. And they had been living in this little house out in the Pacific Northwest. He was working as a part-time baggage handler at Spokane Airport in his retirement, just to keep busy, I suppose. But he got through his career and was on to retirement. Okay, so now let's talk about motive, which probably isn't too hard to guess based on our episode topic today. Officials associated with the Sheriff's Department said that the crime appeared to be motivated by some sort of romantic jealousy. Both men were married at the time of the homicide. There was some sort of love triangle there, said a department source. So then let's back up again and go back to Linda. Following up with Linda at the time of George's death, they had been separated for a year living in separate homes. There was no hostility. Investigators uncovered that they both, as department employees, were dating other people within the department. So again, like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, yep. it gets sort of muddy, right? Yep. But all these years later, these investigators are having to call this list of people and ask them for DNA samples like years after the <laughs> That's event, awkward. which is so weird because they're having to reveal, hey, because of our investigation, we know that you had a fling with George or Linda and now we need some of your bodily fluids. Finally, they land on Kirby, who had been her training officer at the beginning of her career and they went on one date after she split from George. I know we got a lot of people in this scenario, yes. folks, but track it, okay? She said that he was clearly more serious about her than she was about him and she said that he had become obsessive and drove 
drove by her house all the time. This was the info she had reported during the first investigation. Very important. Huh. Yeah, yeah. It's not like she just revealed it all right. these years later. So, well, so on June 20th, 1999, investigators contact Herbie, you know, like they were kind of contacting yeah. everyone else and said, hey, we're going to come to Washington, obtain a saliva sample to determine the DNA in this case. And really, they had kind of saved him for last because he wasn't living in the area anymore. So it's just sort of they finally get around to this guy that's out of state. And over the phone, he was cooperative, agreed to have them meet him at his home. But once they arrived, they were greeted by Kirby's attorney who demanded a court order. So they were able to obtain that court order pretty quickly there while they're still on scene. They took the sample from Kirby and left to process it back in L.A. So detectives quickly, well, as quickly as DNA can be processed, right. determine that Kirby's DNA matched that of the blood on the windshield from the crime scene. So according to the LAPD, Kirby had left his home at least a week before the investigators returned to Spokane with the arrest warrant and was last seen by his wife on or about June 30th. Quote, supposedly he has taken off for the mountains to commit suicide, another source said. Kirby left his wallet and his car but he took his personal firearm. So in a teletype that was sent out to his department's rank and file, then Sheriff Lee Baca, who, by the way, recently served three years in federal prison for obstruction of justice and lying to the FBI, but that's a whole other episode, said that an arrest warrant alleging a special circumstance has been issued for retired Deputy Ted Eugene Kirby, 54, who disappeared from his home after homicide investigators linked him to the crime. In the meantime, LAPD launched a nationwide search and announced Ted Kirby is assumed to be armed and dangerous. So the hunt is on for Ted. Well, the nationwide search didn't last very long because on July 14th, 1999, a local news reporter found the decomposing body of Kirby in the woods near his Spokane home. It turns out that the local PD would not allow a search on the property near Kirby's home. And after hearing of the confirmation of Kirby's death and subsequent DNA match, an L.A. Sheriff's Department captain was quoted as saying, this is not something I would ever have imagined from Ted. I've talked to a number of guys and they all said they just can't believe it. Kirby was then 54 when he took his own life instead of facing justice. Yeah, so... A little Easter egg for you guys in the Netflix docuseries about the Night Stalker from 2021. There's Linda Arthur. She is actually the crime scene tech for the sheriff's department being interviewed about the case. And she comments in the docuseries of how she encouraged Gil Carrillo, you know, the lead detective in the Night Stalker case to push forward with his theory about the child abductor being the same perpetrator as the serial killer. So this was the, you know, that famous summer of 1984 when she would have been encouraging Gil in his investigation. And that was one year before her husband was murdered. So wow. it's kind of weird to go back and see how all of this fits into the Southern California crime lore of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, and fascinating, again, just to live in a time where the technology of DNA identification mm. is just you know, it's changing everything. It's not necessarily deterring people from committing crimes. I mean, I guess everybody is probably trying, you know, the serial killers are trying to be Dexter, you know, and cover their tracks, but there's yeah. more and more technology and surveillance for better or worse that can help solve these crimes a lot faster. Let's go on to our other case study, which is another very, very famous one. Is it? And wild, very yeah, wild. Very, very <laughs> wild. This is from 1981, and this was the Bambi Lady Cop murder, not Bambi the Disney cartoon, but Laurencia Lori Bembenek, also known as Bambi, who was born on August 15th, 
estate to Joseph and Virginia Bembenek in Milwaukee. Bambi was the youngest of three girls. Her father had previously worked for the Milwaukee Police Department, but made the very tough decision to quit after witnessing what he described as corruption within the department. And that's a pretty noble thing to do, particularly mm. back yeah. during that time when it was a completely closed, completely male system. Lori graduated from high school in 1976, and then she attended Bryant and Stratton College in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where she earned an associate's degree in fashion merchandising management. She was tough, known to be a daddy's girl, and she really didn't care much for authority, and she fully embraced the emerging waves of feminism in the late 70s. So Lori worked in retail after college and she had a brief stint as a model. She had bottle blonde hair. She weighed about 140 pounds, five foot 10 inches, very impressive physique figure. I don't add that to objectify her at all, but the description is very relevant later when we get to the crime in question. So Laurencia eventually felt that the call that her father had once had. And in March of 1980, she began her police training at the Milwaukee Police Department. The very male-dominated old-school department was encouraged at that time to hire women and minorities. Otherwise, it was going to lose federal funding. So just because an agency or a business is being ordered to do something does not mean that they're prepared to or they're right. willing to be prepared to or they're going to do anything in order to look down the road at what problems might arise in the lower ranks like a, this this was like a great move forward that was not well thought out not saying that it wasn't the right thing to do but agencies would push back or just drag their heels and this is definitely a period of time where we get a lot of stories about that but here's the thing Lori figured that she could do anything just as well as a man and she was supported by her family although her father had not been impressed with how the department was operating during his tenure several decades before so Lori graduated from the academy in summer of 1980, finishing sixth in her class. That's pretty impressive, right? Yeah, that's great. She picked up the nickname Bambi for her long, thin legs and her big doe-like eyes. Ew, I'm sure she hated that. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's hard to yeah. think of the type of person who would enjoy being objectified that goes into law enforcement those kind of that's not really an overlap that i right. see very much and yes you're absolutely right it was reported that she despised that nickname she really did yeah i mean i can imagine it was only to make her feel worse in the academy right so while she was still a trainee so post academy yet under the observation of a field training officer an anonymous tipster reported that Lorencia was seen smoking marijuana at a party she denied the accusation and it was never substantiated but you kind of see this sort of beginning of trying to fuck with her really right. and it, this was probably happening to many of the women I'm not saying it was just her but she hypothesized that the accusation was made by the wife of another Milwaukee police officer who had confronted her at a party where they were all at about the, you know, the revealing clothing that she was wearing and, you know, accused her of tempting her husband by dressing that way. So she thought that's probably where it came from, even though she never really knew. But I think we're seeing here, you know, some reactions, perhaps some sabotage to her attractiveness in a very male dominated field as just another way to be like, okay, little girl, like you don't need to be playing here, go do something else. So this was the 80s. I mean, there were still not the numbers of women in law enforcement that there are now. So I think I just find this type of bullying really interesting. And I'm sure it was completely tolerated back then. In her autobiography called Woman on the Run, 
1981, Lori wrote that the Milwaukee Police Department was composed of, quote, brutal, lazy, apathetic, and corrupt police officers. She also claimed that female and minority officers were routinely subjected to harassment and abuse during their training. And she stated that when female and minority trainees became members of the MPD, they were often punished or fired for minor infractions during their probationary period, while white male officers went unpunished for far more serious offenses. So the chief of police basically had to hire a percentage of women and minorities because of this threat of not getting his funding, but there was nothing in there saying that he had to keep them. And of the 11 women in Lori's academy class, eight of them were eventually fired. While in the academy, Lori became really close friends with another female trainee named Judy Zess. And in May of 1980, Lori and Judy attended a concert together. Judy had lit up a joint and Lori at that point excused herself to go to the restroom. Well, when she returns, she basically sees Judy in a headlock by a police officer being arrested for marijuana possession. So as somebody sort of by proxy being involved in all of that, Lori gets brought in by her supervisors and is questioned about the drug use, being in the presence of another police officer trainee who was using drugs. And she gets sent home for the day. And when she calls in to the station for her schedule for the following week, they basically just say, don't bother coming in, you're fired. Which is yeah. not how you're allowed to do things in civil service, by the way. Right. Well, it was back then. I'm sure that that still exists in other departments around the country today. But look, even though she was no longer employed by the police department, the drama did continue. After she was fired, Lori discovered photos of several police department officers dancing nude on picnic tables in a park next to a bar where they would all party. So she turned in the pictures to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, arguing that, look, she was fired for a minor infraction. These photos prove that other officers were committing more serious violations and not punished. So she was fired for being adjacent to somebody that was Mm -hmm. breaking a law, whereas these people were breaking laws and got no punishment at all. So the EEOC seemed to kick the can down the road. They told her, well, go file a discrimination report with the police department's internal affairs. And, you know, it's unlikely that it would have gone anywhere since she was no longer a department employee. So after her short time as a police officer, she did work as a waitress at the Playboy Club in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. You know, no judgment on that. But I'm sure that like was really quick gossip around her former place of employment. Right. And just colored this whole story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're always going to look for something, especially in the 80s, to make it more lascivious. And it was around that time that she first met Fred. Ed Schultz, one of the guys in the pictures that she had turned into the EEOC. So here's, you know, she's meeting and starting to get to know this guy that she turned in on. But then he was yeah. also naked on a p- picnic table. Come on. Grow <laughs> and up, somebody dude. had to print those pictures back in the day because it was the 80s. Exactly. So come on, guys. <laughs> exactly. Fred was a 13 year veteran of the police department. He was a recent divorcee and he had two sons from that previous marriage. So he and Lori moved really quick in their relationship because in January of 1981, they were married. And by the time they were married, Lori was working as a personal trainer at a health club and just moved right in sharing an apartment with her new husband, her friend Judy, and Judy's boyfriend. Later that year, Lori was able to get back into a law enforcement adjacent job as a campus security officer at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Yes. So we have this all set up. I don't know about the decisions that are being made here. (laughs) 
she's they're living back with her friend who's been fired i don't know it's just like all of all of this is like red flags but it gets worse of course so only a few minutes later after their marriage on may 28 1981 at approximately 2 15 a.m Fred Schultz's ex-wife, Christine, was murdered in her Milwaukee home. She had been gagged and blindfolded and her hands were tied in front of her with a rope. She had been shot at close range into her back and through her heart by a single shot from a 38 caliber pistol. Her two sons, who were 7 and 11 years old, found her face down on her bed bleeding. Her older son had caught a glimpse of the murderer and was able to describe him as a masked male figure in a green army jacket and black shoes. He added that the man had a long reddish colored ponytail. During the time the crime occurred, Fred initially said that he was on duty investigating a burglary with his partner, but years later admitted that he was actually drinking at a local bar. At least he wasn't naked on a picnic table, I guess. However, when the ballistics results came back, it was revealed that the shot fired from the murder weapon matched that of Fred's off-duty revolver. But for some reason, suspicion quickly shifted to Lori rather than Fred. She had been alone in the apartment and had access to both the gun and a key to Christine's house that Fred had secretly copied from his oldest son's house key. Hmm. Lori was arrested for Christine Schultz's murder on June 24th, 1981, less than a month after the murder occurred. As you can imagine, Lori's trial generated tremendous publicity, especially after they caught wind of her Academy nickname, Bambi. It really seemed like an attempt to sexualize this murder case and the prosecution immediately painted her as a loose woman obsessed with a luxurious lifestyle because of course you know when you're working as a security guard you want to go for yeah. that luxury lifestyle right but they really tried to paint her as someone who wanted christine schultz dead so that fred wouldn't have to waste money on alimony and child support they claimed that she was the only person with the motive means and opportunity to carry out the crime there were no signs of a break-in no valuables taken which added to this theory now the strongest piece of direct evidence however was was two human hairs found at the crime scene, which matched ones taken from Lori's hairbrush. Interesting. The prosecution also put witnesses on the stand that testified that Lori had spoken often of killing Christine. The prosecution even produced a witness who said Lori offered to pay him to carry out the murder. According to other witnesses, Lori owned a green jogging suit similar to the one described by Schultz's son. It was also argued that she owned a clothesline and a blue bandana similar to what was used to bind and gag Christine during the perpetration of the murder. Interestingly, a wig was found in the plumbing system of Lori and Fred's apartment, matching fibers found at the murder scene. And a boutique employee testified that Lori purchased such a wig shortly before the murder. So it's not looking good. No, it is not looking good for her. And I will add, though, that the son that was the witness stated that Lori was not the person who shot his mother. So they must have done some sort of, you know, six pack identification with him. And he said, no, that's not the person. However, he was clearly under a lot of stress of a traumatic situation. Right. And we know how unreliable eyewitness testimony is, especially for those in a situation, one, where there's a weapon present and certainly when, you know, there's a loved one injured. So the prosecution's case prevailed because on March 9th, 1982, at the age of only 23, Lori was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. It's kind of amazing to think about she's only 23 when we've just gone over all these different aspects of her life. I mean, she really comes across as a survivor. 
survivor, you know, yeah. for better or worse. Somebody who is like always lands on her feet and she's mm -hmm. reinventing herself, all those kind of things. While starting her prison sentence in June of 1983, she filed for divorce from Schultz. She said that Schultz had written her a letter informing her that he was living with a 19-year-old woman in Florida and had decided to end their marriage. Schultz had initially stood by Lori and believed she was innocent. He later publicly stated that he believed she was guilty as sin. Conversely, Lori maintained her innocence and came to believe that Schultz was guilty of hiring someone to murder Christine and allowed her to take the fall and she had a suspect in mind. Lori claimed that the actual murderer was a man named Freddie Horenberger. He had briefly worked with Schultz on a remodeling project and was a former boyfriend of Judy Zess. Several weeks prior to Christine's murder, Horenberger disguised himself and robbed and beat Judy. What the hell is going on with this friend group? I mean, I know they're all I told you. young, but this is so crazy. Well, and that sounds like a pretty similar MO to me. Yeah. I mean, but maybe she got the idea from that attack. Yeah. You know, you never know. A seed of inspiration. First. Right. Interestingly, though, Freddie ended up eventually serving a 10-year sentence for that crime. Mm. Okay. Well, while in prison, Lori filed three unsuccessful appeals of her conviction, citing police errors in handling of key evidence and the fact that one of the prosecution's witnesses, her girlfriend, Judy Zess, had recanted her testimony, stating that it was made under duress. Not sure what part she testified to, but yeah. it was probably pretty important to the conviction, especially if her attorneys are arguing that point. Lori and her supporters also alleged that the Milwaukee Police Department may have either set her up or let her be the fall person because of her complaints against the department had actually contributed to a federal investigation into police corruption, and she was set to be a key witness in that. So that's also stinks of something possibly happening there. But according to a number of affidavits, which emerged following Lori's conviction, Freddie bragged about killing Christine to other inmates while he was in jail. However, to no one's surprise, he publicly denied any involvement in the murder until his suicide in November of 1991 following a robbery and hostage situation in which he had been involved. This guy's a peach. I mean, I don't know what else we could say. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a mess. And again, going yeah. back to those ideas of sort of relationship magnets of what attracts each other, you know, there can be, you know, you fall into a wrong crowd, you know, the yeah, fall, sure. fall into a group of people that are a little bit flexible in their morals. And I don't mean necessarily the way they express sexually, but the way they, they view themselves in respect to authority. And we've mm -hmm. already kind of laid the groundwork that, that Bambi herself or Lori has a reputation for, you know, being a bit of a rebel, right? Yeah. So additional questions were raised as to the accuracy of the evidence in the trial. And there was a doctor. Dr. Elaine Samuels, the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy, she had originally concluded that the hairs recovered from Christine's body were consistent with that of Christine. So after Dr. Samuels had come to that conclusion, the hair evidence was examined then by Diane Hansen, a hair analyst from a crime lab in Madison, Wisconsin. Diane Hansen stated that two of the hairs were consistent with samples taken from Lori's hairbrush. So Dr. Samuels stood by his opinion, stating in a 1983 letter quoted in the Toronto Star in 1991 that, quote, I recovered no blonde or red hairs of any length or texture. All of the hairs I recovered from the body were brown and were grossly identical to the hair of the victim. I do not like to suggest that evidence was altered in any way, but I can find no logical explanation for what amounted to the appearance of blonde hair in an envelope that contained no such hair at the time it was sealed by me. 
That's a Ooh. big deal. Yeah. I mean, he's saying, I don't know how to explain it, but that was not there when I sealed it up. Ooh, battle of the experts, right? Right. So going back to this other issue is since we're talking about hair of this wig that had clogged a drain in the apartment building, the apartment where Lori, Fred, and Judy lived actually shared drainage with another apartment. And the woman who occupied the other apartment was brought in at one point to testify that Judy had knocked on her door, asked to use her bathroom. After Judy used this woman's bathroom, the plumbing all of a sudden was clogged. So the idea there that I think Bambi's attorneys tried to plant a seed about is that Judy was in on it as well. She, at least she tried to dispose of the wig. And then at some point, Judy had admitted to owning a brownish red wig. So, I mean, I know Lori's already been convicted, but these are some of the things that she's making a case for that, you know, really this should have never happened. Who puts that amount of crap? I mean, like not cra literal crap. Not literal crap. But like just putting <laughs> objects down a toilet. I mean, a wig. I mean, and also you're you're involved in like an investigation. You're going to get rid of evidence that way. It makes no sense to oh, me. I know. But let's get back to Lori. Lori was very productive in prison. She earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin Parkside, and she helped found a prisoner's newspaper. She also met and became engaged to a family worker, Dominic Giugliato, who was the brother of her cellmate. But one thing that Lori was really clear on, she felt that she had served enough time for a crime that she clearly did not commit. After nearly nine years in prison in July of 1990, Lori escaped through a laundry room window in the middle of the night and was picked up by Giugliato. The couple fled to Canada, crossing the border, stating that they were newlyweds on their honeymoon. The public's interest completely exploded into a frenzy. The idea of a former model turned cop now on the run after escaping prison for a murder charge was stranger than any fiction that anybody could come up with. She was becoming something of a folk hero now and a song was written about her t-shirts were sold with the slogan run bambi run and that's also the name of the song is run bambi run so Lori and her husband adopted aliases and she began working as a waitress and later as a fitness instructor in canada and on october 17th 1990 the couple was arrested after a tourist saw a segment about them on america's most wanted and turned them in Giugliato was deported back to the united states a month later when was eventually sentenced to one year in prison for his role in Lori's escape. Lori was able to seek refugee status in Canada, claiming she was being persecuted by a conspiracy between the police department and the judicial system in Wisconsin. The Canadian government expressed support for her and her case and obtained a commitment from Milwaukee officials to conduct a judicial review of her case before they would let her go back, essentially. So the review did not find evidence of crimes by police or prosecutors, surprise, surprise, but detailed seven major police blunders, which had occurred during the Christine Schultz murder investigation, and Lori won the right to a new trial. I mean, this is truly astonishing. For that time, I yeah. Cannot think of another case where basically, you know, someone listens to someone's side like this, where she just. Especially after they escaped. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Like you would think, sorry, nothing you say You're done. is yeah. good anywhere, but Canadians are so damn nice. Exactly. So Lori voluntarily returned to the U.S. on April 22nd, 1991. Rather than risk a second conviction, she pleaded no contest to a second-degree murder charge during a hearing on December 9th, 1992. Lori was then sentenced to 20 years, which was commuted to time served. She was released from custody three hours after the hearing, having served a little over 10 years total. Wow. So Lori 
like I had mentioned before, wrote a book about her experience, but her life after her release just was a steady downward spiral. She was arrested for possession of marijuana. She had to file for bankruptcy. She was diagnosed with hepatitis C and alcohol abuse disorder. And in 1996, she moved to Washington state to be near her retired parents who were in Vancouver. And there she met U.S. Forest Service employee Marty Carson and they were married in 2005. To combat her health problems, including a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, she resorted to painting, a hobby that had earned her actually some recognition in the early 90s. Her husband, it sounds so sweet, he constructed a studio for her, and over several years, she amassed about 30 paintings, which she put on display at a local art gallery. And how awful is this? The art gallery burns down in a fire, and all of Lori's paintings are destroyed. I just feel like this poor woman gets like a new lease on life and she can't win on anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot of aspects of tragedy to this. That seems a little weird. I'm not yeah. saying that she was involved in it, but that just seems an, a, a very tragic coincidence. She did continue to insist that she was innocent, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court refused to overturn her no contest plea, saying that such a plea could not be withdrawn. And in April 2008, she filed a petition with the United States Supreme Court seeking a reversal of the second murder conviction. Her attorney pointed to the evidence not heard in the original trial, including male DNA found on the victim, evidence the victim had been sexually assaulted, and the witness and the eyewitness testimony of the two young sons who said that they had seen a heavyset masked man. Lori's petition argued that the court needed to clarify whether defendants who pled guilty or no contest have an opportunity to review evidence comparable to the rights of those who plead not guilty. Her appeal was denied again in June 2008. In 2002, Lori was scheduled to appear on the Dr. Phil show and they oh were going to pay for the DNA. I know. <laughs> they were going to pay for the DNA to be tested and the results were going to be revealed live on the show. However, she claimed that she had been confined in an apartment by handlers for the show under surveillance and guard by a security officer, which is not far from the truth. It could be, right? She also asserted that she was triggered by her prison experience and that she had tried to escape out a window because she got so triggered. The fall resulted in a very serious injury, so serious, in fact, that a portion of her leg had to be amputated. I know, oh my God. Poor woman. Stop. And again, Dr. Phil show. I'm just saying. So November 2010, Lori dies at a hospice facility in Portland, Oregon from liver and kidney failure. I, so there's just so much to the story. I mean, obviously we could have done way more on this, but I really encourage people, if you want a more in-depth reporting on this case, I would suggest the podcast Run Bambi Run, and it's done by Campside Media who does wonderful podcasting. It was just released last year in 2022. So please go ahead and listen to that if you want more on this. This is such an interesting case because I had heard about it originally, I think at a conference, they were just talking. I had not heard about it before. I mean, I don't certainly like remember this at all happening in real time, but it had come up as this cop killer, this female cop killer. And I didn't know until diving into it that it's pretty likely a wrongful conviction. I mean, just I, really. I yeah. I know I'm the same way, especially what I wasn't aware of until you put all this together. I was not aware of the new evidence or the evidence that was not allowed yeah. at trial. And I'll, I'll I'll say, you know, for for those of you who listen to us, you probably have listened to at least a few 
uh, episodes produced by Bob Ruff, uh-huh. um, and certainly over the last year with the Pinion Pines murder case, which sure. is so in depth and exhausting. And I mean, exhausting because it's it's so intense. There's so much going yeah. on there. But I would encourage everybody to go and listen to the last episode of this last season where they're wrapping everything up Mm -hmm. because Bob and his co-hosts make some really pointed statements about how our justice system works or doesn't work. And there is suppression of evidence. I mean, it's not even called suppression of evidence. You're just allowed to not bring things forward. Yeah. You know, and that's part, that's allowed. It's part of the legal dance that we do in this country. And I don't know I mean, it sounds like she had a tragic life. Yeah, I mean, definitely. But I I just feel like, you know, at first you kind of stack these things up and you're like, oh, crap, like there's hairs that match, which hair evidence is not great evidence. I mean, unless it's like DNA, but just back in the 80s comparing hair types right you know well that turned into junk science real quick and clearly like you know i'm probably no only an an atom of the amount of information that web sleuths and people who are dedicated Mm -hmm. to this story on reddit know they probably know ins and outs of all the minutiae but one of the things in the research that we did in preparing for this like that kind of struck me is like there the reddish ponytail reddish hair reddish brown hair like there's indication that there was a wig wig hair right. even if it's made of human hair is radically different from yeah, hair that is point. freshly plucked I mean that because most wig hair has been chemically processed over and over again it's clear to the the first minute you look at it even if it's mm-hmm. waterlogged anyway mm-hmm. that's just another rabbit hole we can go down yeah. but well i think ultimately you know here we don't have justice for the victim it Christine, doesn't seem in like this it. case and you know people just let that sort of go and we're happy locking up somebody for it so crazy crazy stuff yeah i wouldn't be surprised if at some point that if they do further dna testing that it gets connected through ancestry to somebody oh yeah sure sure so as for where you can find out more information or especially like on the entertainment side there's the podcast i mentioned so the id channel did the george arthur murder it's one of their old shows called unusual suspect and the episode is called blood on the badge and then there were two it's not surprising two made for tv movies about bambi's case so there's calendar girl cop killer the bambi brembic story which was 1992 and then there's woman on the run the laurencia bembrick story which was from 1993 so i of course they made those tv movies well that would no, it was woman on trial and that was tatum o'neill oh was that it was, tatum yeah o'neill. tatum o'neill oh, okay. played it and then the other one had oh god who was in that there, it was interesting. There's like some bigger names in these particular mm. movies because like, again, it was hot. This was, I mean, to have within a year, yeah. like yeah. two of these, you know, stories done. It was, that was as big as like the Amy Fisher. Amy Fisher had like multiple yes um, iterations. Right. Oh, we should do that story too because they're all still yeah. around, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, there you go. I mean, there's your cop love triangle murders. <laughs> yeah. Woo. All right. We have, let's see, our 
documentary episode next week, yep. which if you guys have not watched yet, we're going to be reviewing Menendez and Menudo, Boys Betrayed. It's on the Peacock Network. It's only three episodes. I checked this time. Yeah. So we rarely talk about like what we're going to do on the previous episode, but you can always find it on social media. We put out what we're going to be reviewing if you want to watch it and catch up. What else? We, we're just sketching out August because here we are moving right along through summertime. Yeah, you know what? In our check-in, we didn't talk about what we're watching. I'm actually watching something now. So folks, if you haven't seen Jury Duty, the, <laughs> the reality show, like it yeah. is... I did not want to see it. And then one of my friends who hates everything said it was adorable yeah. and fun to watch. And it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. My mom told me to watch it. It's She's good. Like, From a psychological perspective, I think you would like it. Yeah. So in our, when we do our documentary episode next, we'll tell you what we're watching or reading or listening to as well. All right, Dr. Scott, anything else? That's it. Thank okay. you guys so much. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks. Bye, Bye folks. Guys. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>